You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. God, we are grateful that your word speaks today. Uh, We are grateful uh, for all that you've given us in your son, Jesus. I'm grateful that you kept your promises to Israel and to us. That there, that though there were times of rebellion and times of running from you and times of wandering, and that you never stopped pursuing us, waiting to welcome us home. So would you remind us of the good news today? Would you remind us of the gospel? Would you remind us, would it not be old news? What you came to do, Jesus, loom large in our hearts this season. In your name we pray, amen. So we're in our Thrill of Hope series. We're kind of marching half a verse at a time through Isaiah 61. And today we're going to do Isaiah 61. A whole verse today is what we're going to look at. We kind of split up Isaiah 61.1 into two different sermons. And last week, Danny spent some time kind of working through what it, what it meant that Uh, what it meant to be free and and how we were in chains. And and his whole premise was that that maybe maybe we are the ones who are imprisoning ourselves. That it's not exterior oppression, but it's internal chains of sin that we need to be freed from. And so today is more of the same. And I just, I think there is this tendency, and I feel it uh, as a preacher of a church that is not liturgical, uh, that's not orthodox, where they have everything planned out and you're doing the same sermon uh, year after year. There's a tendency to want to say something new, right? And there's a tendency in the pew, or we don't do pews, but chairs, to want to hear something new, right? In the Advent season, Nothing could be more true than us just needing to be reminded of old truth. That we celebrate what has already been done. And so today I want to look at what it looks like, all the implications for captives to be free from Isaiah 61, uh, 1b, uh, where he says, uh, I'm proclaiming freedom for the captives and for those in chains. And then he goes to, chapter, he goes to verse 2, which begins to explain the implications of that when Jesus is proclaiming that. I want, to, I want to look at what it means to be free. I want to spend some time this morning thinking about the Lord's vengeance displayed. And I want to, at the very end, invite us to take the proclamations of the Lord this morning seriously. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, follow along in your copies of God's word or on the screens behind me. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. As we think about the Advent season, we are reminded of who Jesus is, Reminded of why he came. Matthew 1, 19 and 20 reminds us of this. 
But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was uh, afraid or hesitant to marry, uh, to marry Mary. She was pregnant before they were married and, and he wanted to divorce her quietly so that she would be okay and, and, and he wanted to get up. And so the, the angel comes and says, listen, don't be afraid. Uh, marry her. The, the baby is within her. It's, 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 it's of the Holy Spirit. And he says this at the very end, for he will save his people from their sins. She calls him Jesus. Jesus was a relatively common Hebrew name, Yeshua, or it's also where they got the, the name Joshua, which means he saves. It has this, this idea, if you named your son uh, Yeshua or Joshua, it was almost like you were saying, may the Lord's promise come true. May the Lord bring salvation. It was a, a name of great meaning and hope. And, and, and the angel tells Joseph, listen, all of the names that have gone before, everyone that's been named Joseph and Yeshua, all the promises that have been in that name are not gonna come true in this one whose name is Jesus, for he will actually be able to do it. His, he will actually be able to bring salvation and not just hope of salvation to the world. He also says to Joseph, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. In other words, there was a need. That the Jews had a need to be saved Jewish people were in need of saving and some of them didn't know it. Much of the Jewish framework around Jesus' time was that they needed salvation from Rome, that the greatest good in their eyes was national liberty, freedom from the oppression of Rome, freedom to pay taxes to their own people and have it stay local. The mission, though, of Jesus was not just to be a great teacher, though he was, was not just to be a great miracle worker, though he was, was not just to be a prophet, though he was. The, the, the whole soul mission is what, what we see in Matthew is that he came to save his people from their sins. The Jewish people were much like we are. We can often confuse what our greatest need is. For many of us, for many of us, we think our greatest need is marital harmony. And so we hope Jesus becomes our marriage counselor. For many of us, we think our greatest need is financial security. And so we hope Jesus becomes our benevolent stockbroker. Or we want Jesus to give us health or a peaceful life or a comfortable life where Jesus becomes the bulldozer that clears away all the trouble so we can live in peace. The problem is what happens when we misdiagnose our greatest need and our marriage falls apart, and we don't live a comfortable life, and the bank account isn't full, and our kids don't come home, what does that say of Jesus? Our greatest need today is the same need of the Jewish people, forgiveness of sin. That our greatest need is not, uh, is not those things, though those things have a place in our lives, our marriages, our kids, all of those things, our health. And Jesus certainly, certainly moves in those. But his greatest concern for us is not that we live happy, healthy, uh, vibrant, rich lives. It's that we are forgiven and know our God. Israel at this point had not heard from God in 400 years. He stopped speaking. 400 years his presence hadn't been in Israel 400 years. They had not heard from their creator. They had known captivity. They had known colonization. If only God could liberate us from Rome, then we would worship him. 
If only God could fix my life, then I'd worship him. And so I just want to start our discussion in Isaiah just by saying these few things. You and I need forgiveness this morning. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is forgiveness for sin. If we miss that need, we miss the whole core of Christmas. We come to Jesus with expectations he's not meaning to fulfill. Jesus came to secure forgiveness and salvation for us forever. And verse 2 of Isaiah 61 helps us see that. And so I want to I wanna look at Isaiah 62, uh, 61 verse 2 in two sections. We're going to call it the longest year and then the shortest day. And at the end of that, I want to give us an invitation to consider a serious faith. Number one, the longest year, the longest year, verse two says to proclaim, and this is Jesus has come to, he's saying, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And like we said earlier, Danny came and and talked about last week uh, being freed from captivity and being freed from bondage. And so Jesus's thought is continuing here to the implications. What does it mean that the bondage would be broken and that uh, captives would be free? What life would they have? And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we look at the word proclamation, we should understand it maybe uh, in the the terms of a president uh, after a national emergency where we all turn on the news and he says what? My fellow Americans, and then proclaims what we're going to do. Jesus is proclaiming he's going to do these things. These things are going to happen. We don't have to trust anyone else's words. He's saying, I'm proclaiming here is truth. So what does it mean, what does it mean that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Uh, it is a, it's an interesting concept that, that we kind of almost, because we're not as steeped in the Old Testament, that seems almost foreign to us. We go, what, is it, what does that mean? If you reach back in, into Leviticus, Leviticus 25, uh, read with me. Uh, it'll be on the screens, also in your copies of God's Word. Uh, verses 8 through 12, as we read about the year of Jubilee, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall proclaim and consecrate the 50th year. And you shall proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property. And each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows or itself or nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the fields. And so this is, this is instructions for a year of celebration, jubilee, party, worship that follows the years of Sabbath. So in Israel, uh, you would farm the land for six years. And on the seventh, you would rest. You'd let the land grow fallow, which is good for the land, but also good for man. And so that whole year, you would, uh, that year of the Sabbath, on the, on the seventh year, you wouldn't sow or reap. You would gather whatever the ground created or eat from your storehouses and the Lord would care for you and you would worship the Lord in rest. And so after seven years, after seven Sabbath years, 49 years, there was this year of Jubilee, which was like, if you lived that long, you'd have the 49th year, off 
and then the year of Jubilee off, two straight years of not farming the land, living on God's provision. Done right, this was two years of rest for God's people. But the year of Jubilee really did three things for the Israelites. And I want to tease them out because they help us understand what the year of the Lord's favor is. Uh, it did this, that it provided rest for the people, provided forgiveness of debt, provided restoration of heritage. So if we're going we're gonna to understand the year of the Lord's favor, we look back at the year of Jubilee and we see that it provided rest for God's people, forgiveness of debt, and restoration of heritage. There would be rest for the land and rest for the people. That is, they would have to be focused on, on preparing for that year and not working the land. They could eat anything that the land grew, but they would have to trust the Lord that whole year for provision. And they would rest. Rest in the Lord's provision. Rest from the hard labor of the land. It was to be a picture of provision for the people he loved. In the year of Jubilee, there would be forgiveness of debt. It is not uncommon and was not uncommon for the Israelites to go into debt with one another. If your farm didn't produce enough and you couldn't buy enough food for your family, you would go to someone else and say, hey, I need, I need some money for food or I need money for feed. And you could get in this cycle where uh, you would need another loan for more, for more this or more that. And, and before you knew it as a family, you would be indebted over here to the banker. And it was entirely possible the banker would say, listen, you're in so much debt, you need to give me part of your land. And so then what ends up happening is you end up working the land that you owned for someone else as a sharecropper, basically a tenant cropper, working your former land to pay off your debt to someone else. In the year of Jubilee, when the 50th year came around, what happened is the day after that trumpet sounded, all of your debts were cleared. It didn't matter how much you had racked up. It didn't matter how much debt you had. It didn't matter who you were indebted to. In Israel, on the day of the year of Jubilee, all of your debt was canceled. The banker couldn't call you. The collections agency couldn't call you. All of those phone calls stopped. During the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven all accounts cleared. It was, a, it was really a way, it was a way to make sure the misfortune and the brokenness that happened in the world, so like famine, for example, or hailstorms that would destroy a, a crop, part of the brokenness of the world that can't be predicted. It was a way to ensure that all of the Israelites did not live in perpetual debt to one another, that there was a mechanism for freedom, a mechanism for the brokenness of the world to be redeemed. Israel then would reset the accounts of their countrymen so that no one would be in permanent debt to one another. In the year of Jubilee, there would be restoration of heritage. Related to the large debt, when, when, when Israel came to the land, God, God took Israel and divided it up into 12 different sections, or 11 different sections. And that land was your heritage from the Lord. It was your clan's land and you had a part of your clan's land and this was part of your proof. In other words, that land was proof that God loves you and that you're part of his family. And so to give up part of that to somebody, to a banker, is, almost, is tantamount to saying I'm no longer part of the family. And so in the, in, the, in the year of Jubilee, not only are all debts forgiven, but your heritage is reclaimed, that that land has to go back to its rightful owner and your kids and their grandkids can have that land back. It wasn't just a, 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 a disillusion of debt. It was, a, it was a, a restoration of all that was lost of the heritage of the family. That no more would there be orphans in Israel or families without a clan that on the day on the, on the year of Jubilee, everything reverted back to exactly how God had planned it. 
You would no longer be squatters or tenants, but owners again with the heritage that the Lord entrusted with you. Rest, forgiveness, restoration. The year of Jubilee is a picture of the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor meant that Jesus was proclaiming there would be rest for your souls. There is forgiveness of sins and restoration of your spiritual heritage. Danny, at the end of his sermon last week, quoted Matthew 11, come to me all those who are heavy and laden and I will give you rest. That in the year of the Lord's favor, we find rest for our souls. Instead of, instead of being farmers, tilling land that will not produce, instead of being farmers, uh, toiling and sweating against the land that produces nothing, we can find rest. All of the grinding and working for acceptance with God, all of the effort of trying to be a good moral person, then all of the effort trying to continue being a good moral person, all of the struggle of trying to work out your brokenness, these proclivities of sins, these desires, these things that plague us, all of the blood, sweat, and tears to effort into holiness and righteousness, all of that in the year of the Lord's favor is done. It's done in the year of the Lord's favor. Christians rest from trying to keep God's love through obedience. In other words, like in the year of the Lord's favor, you don't have to effort God's love. You don't have to pretend that's possible. In the year of the Lord's favor, we, don't, we can stop trying to attain more of God's love through obedience. Like in the year of the Lord's favor, we can just rest. We, we can acknowledge that God's love flows freely, not because of my effort, but flows freely from the blood of Jesus. And all of that is jubilee and rest for our souls. We can rest from trying to stay forgiven. Like, I, like just as a Christian, as a pastor, I, it's so much of, of pastoral counseling when I, when, I, when I encounter people is, man, I've got to keep doing this. Otherwise, God's not gonna love me. And people don't say it, but they do say it, right? Or I've gotta, I've gotta make sure I come to church and I gotta make sure I read my Bible and I gotta make sure otherwise God won't love me. Or can you believe what I did in my past? I can't believe God would still forgive that. What about the shame? What about a fool I was? And all of these things in the year of the Lord's favor, all of that is your raised by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. In Christ, all of the work of salvation is done. In Christ, all of the work to keep us saved is finished. In Christ, it is finished. We can rest in Christ's secure, abundant love. Which means, after salvation... All of our obedience flows out of appreciation, flows out of a response for salvation. Not, not to try to cater love with God because that can't happen. He loves us as much as he's ever loved us. And he loves us as much as he's ever gonna love us. We obey because we've been saved. We've been given new life. We no longer have to tremble under his wrath. We obey because we're free people to follow him. We obey in joyous response what Jesus has accomplished. There is rest for our souls in the year of the Lord's favor. There is also forgiveness of debt. In the same way that indebted farmers were forgiven, all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our, uh, our wayward desires, all of our wayward uh, proclivities and patterns and actions. See, we often mistake sin as just being the thing that we do. 
But scripture tells us sin is what we are. That is an identity part of who we are. The sin isn't just what you do. Uh, it's also any, it's any thought, action, or desire that runs contrary to the will of God. Sin, the things that we do then are fruit of what's inside our hearts. God has created us. He's made us in his image. He's made us for himself. He, he gave humanity direction and humanity in Genesis 3 and since then has rebelled. We've hated his rule. We've wanted our rule. We've wanted our wisdom. We've thought we could be God of our own lives. We owe a debt in rebellion that we cannot pay. This is the essence of our situation without Christ. We stand before the creator of the universe, racking up a debt that is incalculable. And we are helpless and hopeless. We are in debt and need of forgiveness. It is too big to overcome, too big to pay off. There's no amount of debt snowballing that's gonna get you out of that debt. Put it in Dave Ramsey terms. In our year of Jubilee, our debt is paid full, fully and finally by the blood of Jesus. We get Christ's righteousness and he gets our sin and we are freed from the shackles of death. Which means this, every sinful thought you've ever had, ever will have, is paid in full. It means every sinful desire you've ever had, you're having now or will have, is paid in full. It means every sinful act you've ever done, will do, or are doing now is paid in full. Every ounce of foolishness, every wayward thought, every part of crookedness in you is paid in full, now and forever, always to be forgotten. Like the psalmist says, the psalmist says, listen, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions from us. In the day of the Lord's favor, your sin is not just eliminated, it is removed from you. It's no longer a part of your identity. The Lord's favor not only forgives you, but removes it. Martin Luther once mused that, it, that all it would take to forgive and cure all of humanity's sin is one drop of Jesus' blood. And he shed the rest of it to show us that there's that there is surety in our forgiveness and it could never be taken. In Christ, all of the work of salvation is done. All of our sins are covered by his blood. All of our sins, past, present, future rebellion is covered. In Christ, in the day of the Lord's favor, it is finished. Our sin and debt is removed once and for all by the blood of Jesus. There's rest for your souls, there's forgiveness of dead, and in the, in, the Lord's, in, the, in, the, in the year of the Lord's favor, there's restoration of heritage. The New Testament speaks of a church uh, like a family and, and, and likens Jesus to being our big brother. And so when we speak about a lost heritage, we're not talking about a literal land for us. What we're talking about is a heritage with God our Father that was stolen by the fall, that we uh, come into this world rebellious, separated from God, though we were created by him, for him. There is a heritage with him uh, that, inv that involves so much purpose and, and joy and mercy and grace and all of that. When we speak about a lost heritage, we're talking about a lost relationship. And in the year of Jubilee, all, our heritage is restored in Christ. That all those who believe in Christ are called sons and daughters again. 
that we are no longer orphans. We have a family. We have a father. We are no longer enemies. Our, our, we put down our swords and we bend them into plows. We work for the king, not against the king. He calls us his own sons and daughters. We have our spiritual, spiritual heritage back, which means our heritage includes a God who never leaves us or forsakes us. It includes a God in whom we can never be separated from. It, it, it includes forgiveness that is eternal, salvation that is sure, grace and mercy and love that flow in abundance from heaven, provision that never runs out, peace that surpasses understanding, and that his power and display that are on display in our lives, and new life that comes with new desires and new purpose. Maybe a better picture is that we are the prodigal sons and daughters who run home. And our father runs towards us, welcomes us back, gives us our land back, throws a party, and we are forgiven sons and daughters who are welcomed back into the family. In Christ, we are reunited with our father. We are welcomed home. In Christ, our heritage is sure. In the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus declares, he proclaims, your soul can have rest. He proclaims your debts are paid forever. He proclaims you can, can, can come home. The year of the Lord is surely the longest and best year. This is what he means. For the, for the freed captive, for the freed slave, that you enter into the year of the Lord's favor and your soul has rest and your debts are forgiven and you can enjoy God forever as his son and daughter. Isaiah then moves to the shortest day. Moves from the longest year to the shortest day. Last half of verse two. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Merry Christmas. It's funny, like you go through like the year of the favor and, and this passage, like this, just these phrases hits you like a, a bucket of cold water. That's shocking almost. Because we spend so much time. Like what is the year of the Lord's favor? Or, you know, in, in, a, in a modern, in our modern world, we uh, so much misunderstanding about God that he is cruel and capricious and wicked. Uh, and the Old Testament is proof uh, of all of that. And, uh, and, and this seems to confirm that because how could a God who proclaims the year of the Lord's favor also be the God of vengeance? Well, if we go back to Leviticus 25, verse nine, we see kind of how this is connected. Verse nine says this. Then you shall, you shall sound uh, the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. So just before the year of Jubilee, in between, in between the last year, uh, the 49th year of Sabbath, in between uh, the, the year of Jubilee, there was one day, it was the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And so the day of atonement is where uh, a priest will get up and he cleanses himself, offers a sacrifice of a bull uh, for he and his family, then enters the Holy of Holies, sacrifices a goat to pay for the sins of Israel, and then grabs another goat and casts it into the wilderness as a symbolic, uh, a symbolic uh, scapegoat of taking, taking Israel's sins away from the people. So one more year they could be in the presence of God. This is what preceded the day of Jubilee, that sacrifice preceded freedom, that blood preceded freedom, that vengeance preceded freedom. 
When we think of vengeance, we think that it's something petty, vindictive, or capricious, or off the handle. That's not, that's not the sense of this word. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, righteous, earned retribution. It is a, the reward of rebellious people. Before there could be jubilee, justice needed to be had. Before there could be freedom, sin had to be paid for. The only way jubilee could happen was by the shedding of blood in the way God prescribed. And so I just, I want to say this. Salvation and judgment are intertwined. You can't separate the two. Salvation and judgment are intertwined. Salvation by its very nature involves us being saved from something. We need to be saved from the wrath of God that we earned. Uh, Paul in Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we understand is that there is no sin that is, that is small. All of our sin is gravity, has gravity to it and earns us death. The widest lie earns us death in the same way, murder earns us death. That there is no sin in our lives that we've ever committed that was not worthy of God's wrath and death. And so I just like, we earn the wrath of God. That, God is not up there rolling out of the side of bed, cranky with a lightning bolt, just striking people down. We are his people, rebellious, dark at heart, we have earned God's wrath, God's wrath. It is our penalty for sinning against God. Look, if there was no judgment needed, if our sin didn't matter, if he was indifferent towards it, or it and, and he didn't care how we lived our lives, then salvation wouldn't be necessary. If he was just indifferent towards our sin, then all of us would die and end up with him. But salvation and judgment are intertwined. You cannot have one without the other. All of us have earned the wrath of God. He is perfectly just to pour out his wrath on people who have run from him, rejected him, and do so now. So what is the day of the vengeance of the Lord? It is the day where God finally and fully punishes those who have rejected him in their sin. But the day of vengeance is the earned day of God's wrath for those who have rejected his rule in their life. On this day, God will not hold back. He will unleash his heavenly and furious wrath. He'll do it on those who say, God isn't real, I owe him nothing. I'm good enough, I'm doing it my way. I don't need God. You know, there's a real sense here. Like, God's vengeance is a good thing. We live in a culture that screams for justice, desires that we live in a culture that wants balanced scales, and they should. We live in a world where injustice happens. We live in a world where rapists, murderers, and abusers often go unpunished and free. And what the Lord is saying is, listen, no one escapes. No one escapes. If anything, we read there's a day where all injustice will be met with God's wrath, that no one escapes what they're likely to do, uh, that all injustice perpetrated against us or around us will be settled by God. Look, look, the day of the vengeance is good for us because we need to know that God is not indifferent to the choices we make. Like, men and women, God cares deeply about the choices you make in your marriage, 
God cares deeply about the choices you make with your kids. He is not indifferent to the things you do in silence. He's not indifferent to the things you do uh, in in your private lives. He cares enough to make wrongs right through his vengeance. God's vengeance assures humanity that in the end, every justice, injustice will be paid for and every wrong will be made right. God will make sure of that. So if the day, the day of the Lord brings joy, or if the, if, the, if the day of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor brings joy uh, and jubilation, the day of vengeance brings mourning. Brings mourning to the person who rejected Jesus. When that day comes, there will be no second chances. You will not be offered a second chance in eternity to come to believe in Jesus. There will be great sorrow and mourning. There will be great pain. There will, will be eternal separation in hell. And yet, God is slow to anger. Slow to anger. But judgment comes. Judgment is coming for all those who reject Jesus. In the day of vengeance, rebellion is met with wrath, injustice is met with justice, and sin is met with death. If we're going to accept all of the glories of the favor of the Lord, the year of the favor, all of the rest and restoration and all of the hope of forgiveness, then we have to accept as a counterpoint, as Jesus proclaims the day of the vengeance of the Lord, that there is and there will be an accounting for your faith, for your life. There cannot be salvation without judgment. And so I just wanna, I wanna move us here to the easiest and hardest decision any of us need to make. If given the choice, all of us would say, I choose the year of the Lord's favor over the day of God's wrath, right? And here's the good news. Here's the good news. Everyone can choose that. That everyone here, regardless of what you bring to the table, whatever background, whatever rebellion, whatever you've done, whatever, whatever things you've hidden, whatever things you think would, would bring you deep shame and the Lord would turn away from, like the year of the favor of the Lord forgives everything. The biggest hang-up, though, with experiencing the jubilee uh, of, of the favor of the Lord is that we have to acknowledge, first, that we deserve God's vengeance. That there is no favor of the Lord without acknowledging our need for forgiveness. There is no favor of the Lord without acknowledging and confessing our sin and our rebellion against him and acknowledging that only Jesus can save us. And it is easy in one sense because we have to acknowledge that we can't do it all and that there's a God who loves us and wants to give us a favor, but it's difficult because we have to give up the throne of our hearts. We have to give up control of our lives. We have to come to terms with our true nature. There can be no jubilee without judgment first. And so two people in the room, I want to speak to those who don't yet know Jesus. I want to speak to those who do know Jesus briefly. To those who have not yet given their lives to Jesus, who have, who have, who've come here. Like, I just, it's been a wild year at this church over the last year. There have been people who've walked in and they've been broken. They just walked in the church. I don't know why. They've been hurt by life and they just sit down here. They're helpless and say, I don't know what to do. And, and they sit down and, and, and they sing or, or there's been a loss in their life and grief has brought them to this church. Or there's been a bad breakup and they're like, I just don't know where to turn. And they turn to our church or, or the church. Or they don't even know. They say, I just wandered into this church. And I don't know why I'm here. Because I know why you're here. To experience the day, the year of the Lord's favor. And so look, if you're here, if you're here and you've not yet given your life to Jesus, I think you're here to hear this news this morning. The day of God's vengeance is coming for you. 
I wish I had something better to say. I will. We'll get there. But we've got to confront that all of us need that. All of us have that. Judgment is coming for all those who reject Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus yet, take your sin seriously. Take eternity seriously. Take Jesus seriously. Romans 2, 3 through 4 says this. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? None of us know the number of our days. We all think we have more time. It is a great kindness to live today. It is a great kindness to live day after day. It is a great kindness to run from God day after day. It is a great kindness that we live and every, every, each breath we take, every heartbeat in our chest. It is a great kindness because it is an opportunity to come, to come to Jesus and acknowledge our brokenness and walk in freedom. The only refuge from God's judgment is God's son. The only refuge from God is refuge in God. And so don't be foolish and presume you have 30 more years or 30 more minutes. Come today and believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and enter into your year of Jubilee. To those of you who have given your life to Jesus, I just, I, like, I just have two things. Number one, take your salvation seriously. God is not indifferent towards your choices. Yes, you are free, and yes, you are forgiven, but we don't use that license to continue in sin. Take your, take your faith seriously. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Your life is not your own. Your time is not your own. Your money is not your own. Take your choices seriously. Kill the sin in your life. Don't put off obedience. Repent of your pride. Christian, obey freely with joy, knowing what it costs to save you. Like in the, in the end, the sermon just goes back to Matthew 1, 20 through 21, where the angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Jesus came to save his people. That's what he came to do. He's real good at it, and it's already done. Today you can believe you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Make a decision today to follow Jesus. It's the easiest and hardest decision you'll ever make. If you do that, you will enter into the year of the Lord's favor. Let's pray. God, I am grateful that salvation and judgment go together, that I was worthy of death and separation from you. But as while I was still a sinner, while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Christ to die for us that we might be saved. God, would you root that deep in our hearts, deep in our souls, that we would experience the year of the Lord's favor, the year of rest, the year of restoration, and the year of forgiveness for the rest of our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.